KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The tensions between Russia and Ukraine dominating the headlines these days. We wanted to take some time to dive into what we are seeing, why we are seeing it, and probably most importantly, what could happen next. For this discussion, we have two experts to help us understand everything. Dr. Lisa Baglioni is a professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. Dr. Melissa Chakars is an associate professor and chair of the Department of History at St. Joseph's University. I will start with you, Lisa, and I know I'm asking you to sum up hundreds, if not thousands of years of, of this situation, but kind of give me the the overview here of why Russia is interested in Ukraine. What What is the, the origin of what we are seeing right now? Okay, so the short version, and Melissa, my my historian uh, colleague might go farther back, but the short version is that at the end of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine broke away from the rest of the Soviet Union as the Soviet Union split up into 15 different parts. And Ukraine had long been a very important element of the Russian empire. And in fact, as Melissa could will probably tell you it is the it was where we say Russian civilization began. Now, at the end of the Cold War in, in 1991, as as the Soviet Union is breaking up, there's a, obviously happiness among some that the old Soviet Union is gone, uh, the oppression of the communist state is gone, and in the in the non-Russian republics, many but not all are happy that. Uh, Soviet domination is gone. Uh, but but you see others, especially Russians, uh, who, who regret and who are sorry about the end of the empire. And the other part about the Soviet empire was that there was a lot of movement of people uh, across borders. Uh, and as we mentioned before, Russia and Ukraine have this thousand year history uh, together. And so there are lots of Russian speakers in Ukraine and people who are Russian ethnics. Uh, so, so they have this long tie, this long history. Ukraine becomes very sensitive, especially for Russia. There were two attempts of Ukrainians, two attempts to throw off leaderships that were uh, more authoritarian, closer to the Russians. And this is in 2004 and again, 2013. Um, so, so we have this, this more uh, Ukrainian nationalist perspective rising in the, in the post-Soviet era. But what we're really seeing now is, <laughs> it's hard to get through, what we're really seeing uh, now is Putin trying to rewrite the end of the Cold War, where he feels that Russia uh, was, was treated badly, that Russia lost in a sense, and that Russia's greatness was disregarded. And so what he would like to do is make sure that Russia has a quotation marks sphere of influence still in much of Eastern Europe, and Ukraine is central to that. And what has happened, especially, I mean, Putin, in a, in a sense, has exacerbated this. He's created more Ukrainian nationalism, more Ukrainian uh, desire to be closer to Europe because of the threat that that Russia has posed, particularly since 2014. And I should stop there. 
it's very complicated. Um, and, and I'm sure Melissa wants to add. And Melissa, please add anything to, to that discussion, but also as a layman, I feel like I'm hearing, seeing a lot of the things that we saw and heard in 2014 with the uh, Crimean Peninsula when Russia annexed that. Uh, am I correct? And it should be noted that Crimea it is was is part of Ukraine, correct? Yeah. So Crimea was, um, I think, again, as as Lisa was saying, that that when this was all the Soviet Union, it was all one country. So these internal borders were not that different, say, from going to Pennsylvania to New Jersey. You're crossing a state line. That's not much of a big deal. So the fact that you that Crimea sat in Ukraine really wasn't that big of a deal because it was all the same country. The fact that, you know, a large number of Russian speakers live in eastern Ukraine really wasn't a big deal because it was all one country. Once the Soviet Union falls apart, the question then becomes, as, as Lisa was saying, that Russia becomes uh, wants to kind of have power over these former Soviet spaces. So by annexing Ukraine, by um, you know keeping uh, by by supporting separatists in eastern Ukraine, that helps to sort of have an influence in those spaces. So in some ways, this is very similar to the 2014 experience. Um, I would say that you know to add to what Lisa was saying, that really from um, you know I would say the 1990s in the post-Soviet space were very different, difficult economically. So most of the 1990s were spent kind of trying to get their economy uh, into shape. The transition from socialism to capitalism was extremely difficult and very costly, and it was and it took a long time. The 2000s so far have been a space where in Ukraine um, they're sort of they've gotten over some of that transition, and now they're really figuring out what direction are they going to take. Is Ukraine going to um, cozy up to Russia? Is it going to be getting you know having strong economic ties with Russia? Or is there even going to be a military tie to Russia? Uh, are they going to be, you know, getting all their gas from Russia, or is Ukraine going to try to move towards the West and, uh, you know, cozy up to NATO, cozy up to the European Union? Maybe it's even its closest Western neighbors like Lithuania, Belarus, and Poland. There's been, um, you know, some unification in in, in working between those four countries, uh, and I think that's what the 2000s have been so far: is this struggle back and forth. So the elections in Ukraine, you'll get a president who is pro-Russia, uh, and then the next president is pro. West, right? So we see this within the people themselves in Ukraine. We see it in the politics. And then, of course, Putin is ready all the time to be there to say, come to the Russian side. And he's going to support anyone and everyone that is going to be moving in the Russian direction. So, Lisa, what we are seeing now uh, with Russian troops on the, the border of Ukraine, I guess, frankly, like how alarming is this how much of this is kind of I don't want to say business as usual, but something that's not real surprising from what we know with Russia and Ukraine and how much of this is, OK, we should really be worried about this with the size of the troops, uh, over 100,000 troops and the kinds of material they have moved. Uh, this is very concerning. I mean, uh, and, and we can't be sure of what they will do. And there, I, I take very seriously the cyber attack uh, and the other preparations that are going that are going on. So it is very serious. We also know that 
given the geography, uh, there's a time limit on when they can move and when they can do this. So the, the troops are there. Uh, they, they, the winter is their friend. They cannot move the heavy uh, tanks and other trucks and things through once mud season comes. So, so they have moved them at a time when they could seek to strike. So it is really concerning. And Putin's language has been very concerning. I mean, he has demanded control over Ukrainian sovereignty, right? He has said, we want to, we want to tell Ukraine that it cannot you know, make decisions about what alliances or what, what relationships it wants to have. That's, that, that is very sphere of influence thinking. That is not, um, uh, a, well, one could argue that is not the way that the, the international order is supposed to run. Legally, it's not the way it's supposed to run. But this is, again, part of Putin's efforts to remake, to undermine the what we sometimes call the liberal international order. And what we mean there by liberal is this sense that rights and laws matter as opposed to force and power. And Putin is trying to undo the sovereignty, the ability of, of Ukrainians to make choices. Um, so I think I've answered that. Or you can give me ask me a follow-up if I didn't. Melissa, one of the things I hear, and this is just kind of in casual conversation, uh, that we hear a lot about NATO and you talked about cozying up to NATO. I think it's important. Ukraine is not part of NATO, correct? So none of the, like, you know, if, if there is an invasion of Ukraine, none of the automatic triggers that we see with NATO would be in play here, correct? Yes, correct. It is not a part of NATO. And um, as I was saying, there have been politicians who have sought to maybe take steps towards joining NATO. There are politicians in Ukraine that have not wanted to do that. Um, but I think one of the really important pieces of this story is that with the unstable borders that, that Putin has created by having a conflict in the east, by having this conflict over the territory of Ukraine, um, Ukraine cannot join NATO. It cannot join the EU with such conflicts. Um, generally, to join such organizations, you have to have stable borders. And to follow up, Melissa, we talked about Crimea. And I remember hearing the, the, the story that the part of the story that kept resonating with me was that there would be all these soldiers, but they would have no insignias. They just kind of had I think they were green uniforms. There was no didn't say Russian Federation, nothing. Uh, how much of the playbook that we saw with Crimea could be in play here if things continue to escalate? Well, I think that's what's really alarming here is that this time that's not what's happening. This time these are real Russian troops, over 100,000 of them on the border, uh, ready to go. And so I think that is something that's really different. I think that the way that the conflict could start could be something sort of sneaky. It could be a cyber attack. It could be somebody coming in without any insignia, you know, blowing up a factory or, you know, causing some kind of conflict that would give Russia an excuse to move in. So that that could, I think, be the sort of um, more confusing and, and maybe sneakier route of this. But I think that what would come after would be a pretty tra traditional invasion, at least into eastern Ukraine. Lisa, Melissa talked, and I think you referenced as well, the like, kind of the, the population mix in Ukraine. And we talk about politicians point, pulling to the West and then other politicians pointing towards Russia. Uh, 
the average Ukrainian, is it a 50-50 split that would prefer, you know, a closer relationship with the West as opposed to, you know, the part of the population that longs for the days when they were a Russian republic? Or is it uh, one side, there's a significant bigger number, but the minority is very vocal. I mean, can we parse that out? Russian activity has really affected the public opinion on this. Part of the way Russian activity has done it is by taking Crimea and by controlling parts of Eastern Ukraine, because those were places that were, uh, one could argue, less less Ukrainian, well, absolutely, less Ukrainian nationalist. In the old days, if you look at old maps of election results uh, from the early 2000s, you would see basically parties in Ukraine would either lean, as Melissa said, they would either lean towards Russia or they would be more Ukrainian nationalist, uh, which was arguably anti-Russian and pro-West. Um, but, but and and many of the most pro-Russian areas are now ostensibly under, well, with Crimea, legally under Russian control. And then uh, those those areas where the Russians have and, and the separatists are. And in other parts of Ukraine, uh, we see uh, certainly in Western Ukraine, this was always very, very strong place of Ukrainian nationalism. Uh, in, in other parts of Ukraine, Putin's activities and Russian behavior over the last seven years, uh, almost seven, eight years, has has increased their commitment to being Ukrainian nationalists. I, I was listening to a report the other day talking about how more and more, more people who were native Russian speakers who are Ukrainians are not using U- Russian anymore. They are rejecting that the, that language they see such a threat and it is again i have to we have to remind ourselves it's 2022 and putin is saying give me a sphere of influence and most people find that um offensive and and threatening um now the folks who again are and we also have to remember that russia is bombarding its areas the areas it has access to with propaganda that talks about the, the the threat of Ukrainian fascists. They'll use that term over and over again, as well as the the you know NATO and the West as being evil and provoking this conflict. But you know it's, it, that's really remarkable, given that the the Russians have massed over a hundred thousand troops and material there. Yeah, Melissa. This question I asked for the the average person that's maybe listening to this that has heard the the stories and the headlines in vague terms. Um, why, what is the concern of the U S here? Is it in the moment of Ukraine or is it that this would be a big step towards a larger conflict, which every American would have to take note of? That's a good question. I think that, um, you know, on the one hand, I think that the threat of this is what will the United States role be in Europe in the future. So I think even in, you know, under President Trump, um, there had been quite a bit of criticism towards NATO and, you know, what 
country is paying and what country is not paying and what is the point of NATO. Um, and so I think that this is also putting NATO to the test and this is putting what um, the United States role in NATO is going to be. Now, from Putin's perspective and the way that he spins this is that NATO is completely controlled by the United States and the United States um, is never going to do anything. So in some sense, this is really, really, I think, going to be a defining piece of our future. What is the role of the United States in Europe, which the United States has played a very active role since World War II? Um, so for the average American, I think that that might be one of the questions that we're always asking ourselves is what is our role abroad? How much should the United States involve itself in the activities of other countries abroad and how much should it not? Um, I think in terms of the war itself, if it happens, and again, that's another really big question here. We're not really sure what is going to happen, um, you know, what role would the United States play? And I think Putin is pushing uh, as much as he can to try to make the United States look weak. Uh, and that's something that, you know, Biden and any other future president is going to have to really consider. And just to follow up with you, Melissa, we, we hear about, and I think President Biden, as we've recorded this, mentioned uh, several troops are kind of on alert that they might be uh, deployed. Um what is the stat status of the Ukrainian military? Uh, I am sure it's not up to the level of obviously what what Russia has, but a lot of times we look at a lot of these countries we don't understand and we think they all desperately need our help. What is the status of the Ukrainian military? Well, it is a lot smaller than the, than the Russian military. Um, and, you know, I yes, I, if, if they are going to actually fight Russia, they would need a lot of help. Um, I was... I was lucky to go to Ukraine in, in 2019, and I went to Kiev, at the capital of Ukraine, and um, I was really impressed by, in the capital, the, there's a sort of center of the city where there were lots of these posters that told stories about people who were just volunteering to go and fight in eastern Ukraine. So there was a story about a woman who, just an average Ukrainian woman in her 20s, who decided to go and be a nurse at the front in eastern Ukraine, and she died, and so she was being highlighted. Um, and so there were there were volunteers of of men, of elderly people, of all sorts of people sort of coming up and, and giving themselves to this cause. And I think that as Lisa was saying, there has been a rise in Ukrainian nationalism and patriotism and a and a sort of feeling of needing to defend the country. So I think the question of of, of there on the one hand, there's the military forces, which are certainly not comparable, but on the other hand, is what is the Ukrainian population going to do? What is their response to this going to be if it happens? Um, I think that's that's an immediate and really interesting item to find out. Lisa, what are your concerns with where we are in our in our current moment? You've kind of got the the drumbeat here. Uh, how worried are you about how far this could escalate? I'm very worried um, because I do, as Melissa said, I don't think that the start of this conflict or actually the, the, the start of the conflict will be clear that we will be asking ourselves, what is really going on? Who is behind it? Um, I would be very surprised that there would be a declaration of war or a, or a surprise attack in this in the traditional sense of the tanks rolling and trying to overcome the borders. Um, and to me, Melissa highlighted the impact on NATO, even though Ukraine is not a NATO 
country. It's in Europe and you have different different countries in Europe, NATO partners, who very much worry about the fate of Ukraine and worry about the fate of uh, of the alliance, and that alliance has helped to keep the peace. And uh, and I would argue not only from external threats, but within Europe for seventy five years, and it's important for it to to stay. I'm also really worried about the principle of uh, 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 undermining the liberal international order. Right, we're already we have seen Russia do it before. We know also that China has interests. I mean, what what China has, you know, it, it argues that what it has done for Hong Kong is is within its purview. But what about Taiwan? Um, we worry about Russia and and deciding to to fix other problems uh, that it might have um, in. Um, in, in in with Georgia with Moldova so so this is this is a worry and the implications too I, mean, I just want to go back why should Americans care uh, we should care too about what might happen uh, with with the price of gas uh, in in terms of the world gas market what's going to happen to Europeans um, and 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 what what is the fate of these people whose whose lives will be might be decided elsewhere. And I do think the reputation of the United States is on the line, uh, particularly after the, uh, the way that Afghanistan ended. And this crisis is going to be spun in domestic American domestic political context uh, to, to whoever's advantage. Um, as as we as as it plays itself out, so it is it is a, a, an incre- incredibly fraught time for the administration, Melissa, for the country, for the world, for the Europeans, for Ukrainians. Melissa, I'm curious. We focused, and obviously, you know, looking at it from a U.S. standpoint, what is what are the other big players in Europe's, uh, for lack of a better term, stomach for something like uh, the Germany's and the France and 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 the UK's. Are they all in on, you know, protecting Ukraine or do you is it much more? Well, yes, but where what are we seeing on that front? Well, I think one thing is, you know, all of the countries you just listed are in NATO. So there is a a larger military alliance that has to be considered. Um, But I would say that I don't think that any of the countries you just mentioned have the stomach for an actual ground war. Um, They do perhaps have the stomach for serious economic sanctions. They do have the stomach to send military equipment to aid Ukraine, um, perhaps take in refugees if if that actually came to that. Um, I mean, Lithuania, for example, has already taken in um, Ukrainian political refugees. So I I do think that there's, um, you know, that there's, there's that, but I think in terms of a ground war, I don't think we're going to see a world war three in Europe. Can I just add to that? Um, I think we, I should also state that when I was talking about American concerns, I don't believe the United States is not going to go and, and ask NATO to go into a ground war for Ukraine, because Ukraine is not a NATO partner. And we know that Russia has huge advantages and it would be uh, very difficult. But I keep asking myself, would the, and, and, and today's New York Times has a piece about Germany uh, 
uh, and not being as stalwart in its position uh, against Ukraine. And part of that is because Germany is highly dependent on gas that comes from Russia. But there's a, a really interesting question that is popping into my head is, would Putin have done this if Angela Merkel were still uh, the chancellor of Germany? Germany has is going through or has named a new chancellor, a coalition government. Merkel was, was the force for 16 years. Um, and, and she was a, a great interlocutor with Putin too. They knew each other well. Uh, and so I do wonder what how that is played into Putin's calculations. I would also say one more thing. I think that Putin's calculations are also related to his domestic political standing. Uh, we, I, I mean, I don't have, uh, I don't have data, but I know that he wants to be in power till 1930, I mean, 2036, sorry. And, uh, and, and he is two years from his next election. But it is very important for him to show public opinion and the other elites that I, I am doing things for Russia. And he can't turn around the economy. He can't undo the mess he made of COVID, uh, dealing with COVID. But he can uh, look like he is advancing Russian patriotism uh, and, and standing up to the West. And given the propaganda machine he has, he can play this to his, to his uh, biggest advantage. So, so to me, that's also uh, something very interesting that's going on here. Um, and keep your eyes on that. Melissa, what are the chances? Are there cards to play that could get Putin to to back down. I've heard a lot about very targeted economic sanctions and basically targeting for, and I'm exaggerating to a point, but the 12 people that run Russia, the 12 oligarchs who have their hands in everything and, and really drop the hammer on them economically. Uh, are there other things or is, is that really the most likely thing that might uh, pull Putin's hand off the stove? I think, um, to be honest with you, what Lisa was talking about, the domestic issues, I think that is probably the best pull to get Putin to come back. Um, Alexei Navalny, who is the main oppositionist leader in Russia right now and is under uh, is in prison uh, because Putin put him in prison. Uh, he did an article, he did an interview with Time Magazine recently where he said that this is all just really Putin is just bullying the West in order to satisfy the people at home. That he knows he's a dictator. He knows that he is not popular among large segments of the population. And so by constantly having a sort of circus of activities over here, everyone's looking in this direction. Oh, what's going on? We're going to get into war with Ukraine. What? Um, they're not paying attention to how he's ruining the economy at home, how he uh, is you know, increasingly putting dissidents down, how uh, he is himself amassed. He is quite corrupt. He and his family have amassed a fortune. And his oppositionist, uh, Alexei Navalny, and his, and his team have been um, putting up YouTube videos that fly drones over Putin's mansions. And people are becoming increasingly upset by that. So I think if there is enough perhaps domestic pressure, that might also be an avenue to work to get Putin to pull back. Um, but otherwise, I think a lot of the ball is, a lot of this is in Putin's court, unfortunately, in terms of the international scene. Can I just and I'll follow one? Go ahead. What I was going to say is I am, 
I am not confident that Putin will back down. That's not in his in his DNA, in the way he works. So the only way to to get out of this crisis is is going to have to provide for him some something he can spin as a win. Putin needs needs to show a win. He needs to show he's tough, um, and and that becomes very hard uh, to uh, for for the rest of the world to allow to happen. So this is why um, I'm I, I'm more concerned that some something is going to happen. I don't think sanctions can can. Um, uh, in the short run can have a real impact. It's not, I think in the long term, they can help to undermine anything that's happening domestically is, is a very long-term process be, to, to change because, because of the level of violence and control that exists in Russia today. Melissa, I'm curious, Vladimir Putin in a lot of circles is portrayed, obviously former KGB, but this brilliant strategist that's always five steps ahead of the West. And he's kind of been built up to be this. But then I've read other things that's like, no, nah, not really. He's a bully. He's a he's a thug and isn't really thinking more than what helps him in the in the moment. Where where does he fall on that spectrum of Bond villains, if I can be tongue in cheek for a moment? <laughs> um, I think it's a little bit of all of that. I mean, I think um, I think, but I think one of his most important concerns is staying in power. So how is he going to stay in power and who does he have to please in order to stay in power? And so that involves a lot of people, oligarchs in Russia, a lot of wealthy people. Um, I think in terms of his political strategy, I mean, he's drawing on strategies from, from the Soviet Union. He's drawing on strategies that he learned many years ago. Uh, but I think he's playing also, I mean, he also realizes and he's picking on, um, you know, a, the United States, which is a democracy whereby we have presidential elections and presidents change. And when presidents change, their foreign policies change. And he's taking advantage of that. And that's not a particularly new strategy, right? I mean, anyone who knows anything about the United States knows that that's a possibility. So that's a strategy that's been used before. So I think this time around, he really has pushed the limit in saying, you know, really, the United States is going to have to make a decision about its role in international international politics and especially in Europe. And I'll ask this question to both with you. I'll start with Lisa. Uh, what do you what do you think the U.S. will do? We talked about the possibility of sanctions. We mentioned, you know, troops being put on alert. Uh, as of right now, do you think you'll we'll see anything more? Or uh, I think Melissa mentioned the balls really in Vladimir Putin's court. Do you kind of have we done all we can do to this point and just kind of wait and see and react? Well, what we are doing is trying to shore up the NATO allies that are uh, are closer in, right? So there's big fear about what could happen to the Baltic states, uh, and and so taking action there, uh, giving Poland support, providing more material to Ukraine. But we do just wait. It's not our um, it, it it wasn't our battle. This fight was was picked. He created Putin created a crisis. This crisis, there was no. I mean, you could argue, well, the you know, and he created it back in 2013, 2014, with the support of the of the um, the separatists, and it had been what we call frozen conflict for. 
for a time frozen from our perspective, not from the perspective of people living there, but it wasn't being resolved. But he chose this, this, the end of last year, this moment to provoke a crisis. And, and so the U.S. is responding, like what, what, what can we do? So what we're trying to do is deter. So we try to say, make a threat. You know, if you do, if you do this, we will respond in these ways and trying to figure out ways that will hurt Putin and his and those that matter to him, but not her ordinary Russians. We also try to deter by by making it clear that there's support for other NATO allies and that we will continue our support for um for Ukraine uh, in terms of providing them with arms and that sort of thing. Um, but again, that's that's what you do when, when a bully uh, provokes you. Uh, and and so we do just wait there there's and, and there's little that that we can else that we can do shore up the the alliance work on commitments uh, and try to help Ukrainians figure out how they will respond. I mean, you know, the question is, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Melissa. I would completely agree with what Lisa said. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think there isn't a lot. I think if we think about back to Crimea in 2014, right, what would have stopped Putin from seizing Crimea? I, To be honest with you, ground troops in Europe is what would stop Putin in Crimea. And and the and NATO doesn't isn't going to do that because Ukraine is not a NATO um, ally and the United States isn't going to do that. The American public doesn't have the stomach for that. We just, you know, exited Afghanistan. So in a sense, I think, you know, Putin is also very strategic in picking this particular moment because it's just when we left Afghanistan. So is the United States really going to jump into something else? Uh, you know, I, it's, I don't think so. And my final question, and I could talk to you guys for days about this. I'm sure you hate to do this, but what do you think is the most likely thing we will see? If you and I, if we pick this discussion up uh, six months from now, what do you think is the most likely path that we will see? Melissa, I'll start with you. I want to be optimistic. Um, I really would like to see that this stays peaceful. I, I just, to have Ukraine and Russia at war um, in, in a full on, full out blown war seems to me almost impossible, but I'm trying to remain optimistic. So I would like to say that in six months um, that this has scaled back a bit and Putin has found something else to entertain himself with. Lisa? I hope this isn't true, but. I'm going to expect a kind of cyber attack uh, on the central central services of Ukraine of, of a more severe variety around the opening of the uh, of the Olympics of the Beijing Olympics, and then uh, another a way to provoke or or the argument that somehow there's been a provocation in Eastern Ukraine and the taking of a sliver of Eastern Ukraine uh, and have that. And then later that will be annexed. Um, and I, I, and I don't think that, that anyone will do anything about that afterwards, except for the sanctions. And, but I don't, I don't think that that will be cost-free for Putin. He might think that this is a good solution, but this will, it will come back to bite him, but it will be terrible for It'll be terrible for the idea of the West. Uh, it will be terrible for uh, those people of Ukraine 
but it will also, I think, think unite them. And I hope I'm wrong. I've, I've never wanted to be, never wanted to be more wrong in my life. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 